listening to Affect Autism, where Affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions. This episode of Affect Autism was brought to you by affectautism.com. This is an independent endeavor on my part. Please consider supporting the podcast and the website for as little as $5 US a month to receive extra bonuses, including floor time videos access, your questions answered on upcoming podcasts, my weekly insights video with my takeaways from each podcast, and more. You can become a member or a star member of Affect Autism at patreon.com slash affectautism. Hello, listeners. We are back. It's Daria Brown, and I have returning guest Kieran Rose. He's an autistic self-advocate, a published author, speaker, consultant, trainer, researcher, neurodivergent educator, and he joins us again this week for a follow-up to our podcast because we have so much to cover and so much more that I want to cover that I wanted to get to everything. Um, if you missed the last podcast, please tune in at affectautism.com. We talked about functioning labels, why it's not helpful to say high and low functioning autistic. Um, we talked about how people can be internalizers or externalizers. We talked about how neurodivergence and the neurodiversity movement is in its infancy. We talked about theory of mind. And overall, we talked about how context is so important when discussing anything. So go back and listen to that. There's some great stuff there. So welcome back, Kieran. Great to have you again. Thank you for having me again. Kieran, I wanted to say that um, I've talked to people about your course, The Inside of Autism, and some of the parents in ICDL's parent support group have gone on to take it, and they've all found it so helpful. So thank you for doing that course. And uh, people um, can get the link to that at affectautism.com on today's blog post related to this podcast. I'll put the links. Always a wait list. And like so many people in the Zoom, you're blown away. Um, pages and pages of people that attend. So it's very popular course. And for good reason, he's giving very important information about myths that are out there about autism. And we want to get through to some of that stuff today, continuing on. Um, Check out uh, uh, also the podcast I did with him and Virginia Spielman, a two-parter about redefining autism myths. Today, we wanna get to who is it that we listen to as parents with autistic children? There's so many people offering help for us and supports. And you know whether it's the mainstream behavioral interventions to any myriad of a gazillion types of therapies in that. And who are the people offering these therapies? What do they know about autism? Who is Who are the best people to listen to and why? We're then gonna get into late diagnosis. Lots of adults uh, are get, starting to get diagnosed as autistic later in life. And what is the point of that? What does that mean for autism in general? And we'll end off with the balance between what we want as parents for our children and what our kids actually need and how to sort of assess that with uh, Karen's, Karen's well-founded um, knowledge from speaking with thousands of autistics over the last 20 years. So where would you like to start in terms of who do we listen to? Uh, and I will say that Karen has three neurodivergent children himself so he's very familiar with bringing up children on the spectrum. 
yeah. it's uh, it's an interesting life, isn't it? <laughs> um, and complicated. So, so in terms of who do we listen to, I guess it comes back to what we talked about on the the last podcast. What you what you mentioned there around context being so important, um, because there are a huge amount of people offering a huge amount of what some term as help and others mean a help um in lots of different ways there are there there are lots of people out there who are basically just quite hungry for your money really um unfortunately there are a lot of snake oil salesmen and sharks and and people that will tell you anything because lots of parents come to this stage of kind of of needing help and support and direction and are quite desperate because there is such a confusing amount of information out there and it's really difficult to say listen to that person, but don't listen to that person because everybody takes different things from different people. So in terms of kind of, um, if we think about just autistic people at the moment, there are, there are there are a growing number of autistic advocates out there, which is a good thing. And there are a growing number of people who are providing information, some for free, some paid. And I always say that you need to think critically about who you go to, about where you get your information from and about what you take from people as well. So the way that I always talk about myself is I don't want anybody to agree with me 100% of the time. I really do not want that because, you know, the work that I do is informed by my professional career. It's uh, informed by my long standing in the autistic community and the time that I've spent amongst other autistic people. And it comes from my own personal experience as well as an autistic person and as a parent of autistic children as well. So it comes from multiple different levels, but I don't know everything and I don't pretend to know everything. I don't believe in the word expert. I don't think that's a word that anybody should be using to describe themselves about anything because nobody knows everything about anything. So you, I want you to come to me and I want you to listen to me. Of course, I would love people to listen to me, but I don't want you to agree with everything that I say and think that what I say is the end of everything as well, because I don't know everything uh, as well as any other autistic people, autistic professionals, autistic people with big platforms. They don't know everything and you can't because we're talking about a community that is an enormously diverse and, you know, is made up of millions of people. So there is no one explanation of what autism is. There is no one explanation of autistic experience, but it's about finding people that you relate to. It's about finding people who give you information which you find useful. It's about finding people who you can go to and who will be honest and say they don't know everything. And, And if they don't know, they'll be honest about what they don't know as well. And they'll refer you to other people and signpost you on and so it's about that critical thinking and not I see a lot of um a lot of autistic advocates who have a kind of cult-like following. It's like a fan following, like they're a celebrity. And I don't like it. I really don't like it. It's not something that I foster. I have people who follow me on social media and things like that, but I don't I don't have the hierarchy of being something better than anybody else or anything like that. But I know that people come to me because I'm quite straight talking and I'm quite knowledgeable and I am, and that's not being big headed. I do have a lot of information in my head that likes to come out as you clearly know, Dario. So, so, you know, it's, it's always about thinking critically and going to someone and saying, right, I'm going to take this useful thing that you said, but I'm also going to go and listen to other people because they might have useful things to say as well. Or you might go to other people and actually think, 
that conflicts with what the other person said. So let's think critically about this and weigh this up. And actually, what's useful out of what both those people said? Is there something I can disregard? Is there something I can use? So it's just about being nuanced about all those things and not thinking this one person has all the answers. And that's the same with therapies as well. My, my rule around therapies is, is what's useful and whose purpose does it serve, whatever they're offering. And if it's, you know, we've talked about things like ABA and behavioral therapies and, and that behavioral kind of ideology and mentality where, where people go and, 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 and children and young adults are led down paths of neuronormacy and, and the kind of insistence that you have to do things in a certain way because that's what you do to fit into society, which is not what society is about at all. Society is open and accepting, supposedly. Um, you know, so, so if you go to a therapy and, and they're looking to change your child in some way in order to make their life easier in the outside world, and I use those words very, very carefully because that's the sales pitch, that, that you know, if, if we change your child in certain ways or we change their behaviours, then they'll be accepted more, they'll fit in more. So what you're doing there is actually saying who they are as a person isn't good enough. So it's about critical thinking again and going to different. Maybe if your child needs it, your child won't even need interventions because, and I know particularly in America, this is a thing that, that once that label's there, then you're told you need X, Y, and Z therapies. They might not need any of those therapies. They might just need a good loving home where people are going to validate them and people are going to accept them for who they are and encourage them to be authentic and enable them to be authentic. You know, so even there, starting at that point, thinking critically about things and not panicking and not looking at people as experts, but looking at people that might have some useful information, but also might not have useful information and just cherry picking all of that always comes back to just being nuanced and thinking critically. So I want to harp on one thing you said there. You said they may not need any therapies. Mm -hmm. They may just need a home where it enables them to be who they are and to feel validated. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because I will say that in the parent support group, there's a lot, a lot of parents that struggle. My kid has lots of meltdowns. No matter what I do, they'll do this. No matter if this, they do this. And they're struggling and they're overwhelmed. And of course, as parents, our floodgates of thoughts and worries especially because autism is genetic and maybe the parents are neurodivergent themselves. And what do we tend to do? We tend to worry about every possible thing that could happen in the future that might be wrong. Um, and so they'll wonder, you know, oh, is my child ever going to speak? And the child's like two. <laughs> and they're worried so much about speaking and things like that. And, and some kids will speak when they're three, four, five, six, 15. Um, so, you know, just this over worrying about, oh, because my child is melting down and not meeting this milestone, therefore I'm worried that they're never going to be able to talk and never going to be able to do this and never going to be able to do this. So <clears throat> when you say enabling them to be themselves, let's talk about what you mean by that. Okay. So on what you said there, the, the, I can, when you're describing the panic in other people, I can even hear the panic in your voice. Your, your anxiety is just really, really obvious there. So um, one of my favorite books is The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Um, it's a science fiction book. Um, it's a comedy science fiction book. And on the front of this Guide to the Galaxy are the words, don't panic. Um, and that, that, that needs to be drilled into every parent is 
don't panic just take a breath here um because you can't predict the future you can't extrapolate that far ahead there are millions of autistic adults in the world who didn't speak as children who now speak as adults number one there are plenty of autistic adults in the world who didn't speak as children and now still don't speak as adults but communicate and are validated in their communication in lots of different ways things like aac and sign and so speech is not the be all and end all first of all just just on that little kind of that little notion because that's usually where the panic is and the behavioral stuff as well things like meltdowns and stuff like that which people see and you know they're, they're very visual and they're very graphic and they're very distressing for not only the child but also the parent watching the child go through this so but things like that can change as well things like that children as they grow older can learn to regulate especially if you develop your understanding of what your child needs and you help your child understand what they need as well. As they grow older, those things can, can dissipate as they get more control and more autonomy over their lives and you recognise what distresses them and what doesn't distress them. So there is um, a wonderful uh, doctor and lecturer in the UK. We're blessed to have a lot of really good, really good um, people working in the UK um, called Dr. Luke Bearden. And... He has what he calls um, his, uh, I've lost the word that I was going to say, his golden equation. Um, and his golden equation is environment plus autism equals outcome. So we get very hot up and focused on our children and we forget that our children do not exist in a vacuum. We, we, we think that our children exist in a vacuum. We exclude everything that's going on around them. Sometimes when we're a little bit more informed, we think about the sensory environment that's around our child. But often we do that in a very superficial way as well, because as you know, as I talk about the sensory stuff on, on my course, um, we think about the sensory systems in isolation and we only think of them in certain environments or in certain situations when in actual fact, as Virginia Spillman will tell us, everything is sensory. Our sensory system is keeping us alive. It's processing everything around us right now. Even as we're talking, our sensory systems are processing all of the different senses and, and furiously working and also working together. They don't work independently of each other. They'll cross over each other. So when we start to understand things more, we can start to recognize the impact that the environment has on our children. And we don't just mean the sensory environment. We don't just mean the room that we're in. The environment also includes the people that are in the room, the emotional signals that are coming from the people in the room, the behaviors of other people in the room. So it, there are multiple messages. And if you think about... um. I'm going to go a little bit woo just for a second. So everything gives off electrical energy and we communicate with that electrical energy. So even if there's a chair, the chair has an electrical field around it and we communicate with that electrical field when we interact with that chair. So autistic people have a tendency to have a much higher aroused nervous system. So we are processing more information. So the electrical energy from that chair is giving us a different message than it would be from a non-autistic person. So if you imagine all the electrical energy that's going on around us and all that signaling that we're getting, and autistic children, as many parents will recognize, are quite often emotional sponges. We will suck up the feelings of other people who are in the room with us. If they're distressed or they're angry or they're hurt or they're happy, that can sometimes overwhelm us because then it conflicts with our own emotions that are going on that we struggle to interpret as well. So there's a whole massive lump of stuff going on all around us that we're trying to process. 
And it's only as we become more informed about ourselves and it's only as we become older and emotionally developed in order to be able to handle all this stuff. And we rely on our family and the people around us to make those environments as lowly arousing as possible in order for us to help to navigate all of this stuff. So when we're not informed and when we're panicking and when we have all these people around us, all these experts, like I mentioned before, telling us to do this and do that. And we have family around us saying they shouldn't be behaving like that and you should be stopping that. And they just need a slap backside and everything will be OK. Or people didn't act like children didn't act like that in my day. And or if they did, they got a tanning, you know, and it's you've got all this messaging coming and that puts a lot of pressure on you as a parent. Your child is feeling all of that pressure as well and is the one experiencing all of this as well so your child from the moment that they are born particularly around sensory stuff are invalidated unwittingly as an autistic child once the moment you give birth you, you give birth in a room with bright lights and lots of people in your face and lots of weird noises and lots of strange electrical things from all these machines that are around you assuming that you give birth in a hospital and um, you know so you're already in a you've had that transition from being inside the calming womb to this enormously sensory rich environment which is we've talked about monotropism before and the difficulties about transitions babies experience transitions as well so you've got all of this new sensory stuff and nobody knows nobody anticipates that actually that you're going to struggle even as a baby to interpret all of this stuff so as you grow older you learn that things hurt you that maybe other people don't experience so you learn to express that and then people invalidate you over it or if you don't speak you can't even express it so you're automatically invalidated by people people don't believe our sensory experiences quite often and then we learn to communicate if we're, we're fortunate enough to be able to speak and the way that we speak and the way that we communicate well it's not socially acceptable most of the time so we're being told constantly that we have to change it so all of this is pressure and stress and stigma and trauma that's being applied to children now our job as parents in an ideal world would be that we come at this completely fully informed we know that we're autistic as parents so we look at our children who come out as autistic as well or as neurodivergent in some way and then we recognize that these things are going to be happening so we put things in place to mitigate all of this to make sure that they are as informed as they grow up as possible to make sure that their sensory environments are rich with the sensory sensory information that they need and not the stuff that's going to hurt them that they don't get invalidated in school systems and so on and so forth but because we come usually from a place of ignorance, and I don't mean that in a in an indicting way that, that that's negative about people, I mean ignorance as in a lack of knowledge, we come at this from an uninformed way. We don't realize that all of this is going on with our children, but what we do see is distress. What we see is trauma expressing itself through meltdowns. What we see is that, but we're told it's behavioral stuff which causes us to panic even more so there's a then there's a it's like an ad it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy sorry that you know well this is bad behavior so therefore we take it to the person who can fix that bad behavior but what that person really does is teaches them to mask that bad behavior because it's not really bad behavior in the first place it's distress and trauma so we pull it back to don't panic we find as much information as we can. We look for positive and constructive sources of information. We seek out the, what we were talking about before, about cherry picking what's useful, what's not useful. 
and we forget about social conformity because this is not we're all so busy trying to compete with each other and trying to act in ways which other people find acceptable when really we need to just find our own path and stick to it and find out what works for us and stick to it sorry i just monologue for a really really long time there. no it it i i wish um that parents listening and i'll try and do this in the blog post that accompanies this podcast will break down each of those things that you said and really examine am i actually doing this because i know there's lots of people that believe that they're doing all these things but then you'll have a conversation with them and they're talking about therapies and what they're doing with their child but their child's standing right there and their child is hearing this and saying like, oh, they're doing so much better now, blah, 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 implying that they weren't doing very good badly in the first place, yeah. Yes, and, and you know, just innocent things because as parents, we want the best for our kids. We're trying to do the best, but just really not understanding the impact that what we say in front of our kids is having on them, yeah. uh, let alone what we're thinking and wanting. <laughs> so like you said, if, if the child comes and, and they're, you know, um, <clears throat> I'll give the example of, of my son when he was younger, knocking everything over, whipping toys across the room. Our basement is filled with nicks in the wall of all different colors from all the metal Thomas trains being thrown behind the bed and scraping the wall on the way down. If that kind of stuff distresses you over and over again, and you're like freaking out every time it happens, I mean, your child feels that, your child knows that, um, and in the podcast with Virginia Spielman called uh, The Little Scientist, The Progression of Cause and Effect Play. I discussed this with her at length and she she explained like, my son is a little scientist figuring out what happens when I drop this train? What happens when I drop this one that's not as heavy, that's more heavy? What, 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 does, what happens when it hits that surface versus the carpet versus this? You know, just over and over again, throwing, 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 experimenting. Um, so, where is that where is that line between okay i want to give them the freedom to be who they are and explore but at the same time i don't want my house destroyed <laughs> <laughs> but see this is this is where this is where um you know drf floor time splits into kind of two different sections doesn't it and the first one is really just about getting down on the floor and playing with children um which is the most fun thing so i was going to mention i forgot and you've just reminded me about co-regulation mm -hmm. so this is co-regulation is so important here and co-regulation comes from actually do what they do you know if they're being a scientist you be a scientist as well you get down and you play with them. Parallel play is so important to the development of an autistic child. It's the way that we learn. We don't learn by confronting play. We don't learn by confronting other people and other people confronting us. We learn by watching and observing, and we learn by doing things when other people are doing them. And we learn best and we develop really strong relationships by people who just sit down next to us and do their own thing while we do our thing as well. But to be on your point about, you know, be the scientist with them, get down and play with them. If they're throwing the Thomas, throw the Thomas with them. You know, I know you don't want nicks in your walls and, and things like that, but it's cosmetic and it's meaningless. If it means that your child is going to grow up 
happy and mentally well and develop in the way that they need to develop. And that means that you as a parent have done an amazing job. Who cares if you have a couple of nicks in your wall or, you know, or if the skirting boards are damaged or whatever, it's, it's irrelevant because the most important thing is the person that you've brought into this world. And you brought them into the world for a reason because you wanted to have a child and you wanted them to have a happy life. And that's your legacy as a human being. And if you're more worried about nicks in the wall and, and I know you're not, but you know, if you're no more worried about nicks in your wall and damaged skirting boards or, or a house that maybe is wrecked, but you've got a happy child and you're happy because your child is happy. What else matters? Although if you need childcare and grandma and grandpa are watching the child and they don't want their house destroyed, then it might be more of a struggle. Well, yeah, <laughs> that might be a little bit more of a struggle, but this is, um, I mean, this is a whole other podcast talking about extended family and stuff like that. But, you know, you need grandma and grandpa on board. So grandma and grandpa need to go down this journey with you and they need to learn as much as you do. And there are some, I have met some of the most amazing grandparents out there who are so accepting, recognize themselves in lots of this as well and recognize their own narratives. But I've also met many grandparents who are completely resistant to it. And it's all about behaving and stuff like that. And it's, you know, I'm very privileged because I come at this from the point of view is I I don't care about other people. And if they tut at me or if they're worried about me, I used to, but I'm not anymore because as long as I'm okay. And as long as I'm not negatively really truthfully negatively impacting on other people, I don't care what anybody else thinks that's their problem. It's a them problem, not a me problem. And that's a very privileged thing to say because it's taken me a long time to get to this place. But, you know, I I don't do the the whole keeping up with the Joneses and anything like that anymore because my kids are most important and their happiness and their mental well-being is the most important thing. And other people's social rules and need to conform do not matter to me. And it it really is amazing the journey that our children bring us on um, when we start to go through this process because... I know a lot of parents, and especially from certain cultures that put more pressure on academics and behavior, it's hard for those parents. And it almost becomes a journey for the parent more than for the child, because they have to accept that, guess what? My child might not be top of the class, um, winning awards, prodigy, whatever. Uh, They may be behind other kids. They may develop differently. They may, and that is such a hard pill for so many parents to swallow at the beginning, even though they want the best for their child and they love them to death. There is. And then if you look at, um, obviously, the as, as someone who lives in North America, um, look, 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 looking at the narratives around black people and how black people, um, you know, have to conform as best they can because any sign of non-conformity is a sign of resistance um and and then there's massive negative treatment around that i'm thinking more about america than canada obviously but i know that you have a, a american listeners as well so there, there, there's which is why i said it's a privileged position for me to be in because you know that is my privilege that i can do that whereas people from different races and different backgrounds can't necessarily do those things or it's more impactful on them to make those choices to do those things. So it's, it's like you said, it's kind of, it's difficult because the problem that we have there is culture and whether that's, that's if you're from a background that, you know, that, 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 that conforms to academic prowess and, and rewards academic prowess, or you come from a culture that's subjugated underneath another culture and has to exist as the, other, the, the bigger culture wants them to. 
those things are different and then but that's where this conversation comes down to then to a one-to-one level rather than a, a like homogenous group kind of level but from a, a privileged white background we have don't have to worry so much about those things um because we're the majority and or in the countries that we live in so so you know we do have an element of choice and flexibility but this again comes back to quite often family relationships and and then you know you start to have to think about strong boundaries with people um if they're if they're forcing you to conform or insisting that you conform in certain ways and that's like i said that's a whole other podcast that we could probably do yeah i just always think like uh there should be you know hardcore whether it's psychotherapy or some kind of delving into uh psychological issues with some parents because it it is a uh, it can be a very problematic thing to have to face realities that you don't want to face. Yes. <laughs> and I think I've, oh, I, I think it was in We Chose Play, my series that I brought this up uh, at, at when I lived in a condo in downtown Toronto, not long after my son's brain inflammation and getting the autism diagnosis and sort of realizing that our life was going to be different than expected. My son was going to have challenges um that i didn't expect him to have have to be having um the concierge at my condo the doorman was this wonderful lovely man from egypt who you know was brilliant but was stuck working a job as a concierge because you know you come in to canada and you're working on you had he had a good job but he also was doing this as a second job and he was just looking at me one day when i was talking about my son and this and that and all these things that could be wrong and what we're doing and he's like woman he didn't say that but he's you know in my mind it's like woman what are you thinking he was basically like look look at this beautiful child in front of you look at him anything could happen he get hit by a bus tomorrow and he told me about some people in the building the older couples who the one man was sick in the hospital the wife went and visited every day and then out of the blue the wife died like you think that person's sick and gonna die and then the other person dies like anything can happen focus on this beautiful child he's like look at this beautiful child he loved my son he'd pick him up he'd turn him upside down my son would laugh his head off and he was like always so much fun to see him he was like a natural floor timer without knowing what floor time was he just interacted so lovely with my child and like woman what are you thinking here like Focus on what's important. This beautiful, loving, fun child. Stop worrying about all these other things. And that really stuck with me from early on. I'm grateful to him for that. It's very, very similar to a piece of advice that um, we got about my youngest. Um, my youngest, we have uh, like primary schools and secondary schools <clears throat> here in the UK. And, um, and actually where I live, it's the primary schools are split into two two different types of school as well so they were they'd moved up from um infants into a junior school and um were struggling really really struggling we'd known for a while that the school system probably wasn't right and were heading towards a decision of, of taking them out of school anyway and um got to a point where they they'd, they'd for a very brief period of time um started school refusing i hate that term i don't like that term but that's the term that most people probably recognize i call it school induced trauma um but um so they couldn't they couldn't go to school the school was starting to insist well you know just 
bring them to the doorway and then we'll coerce them in and, and all of the usual things that any parent that's gone down this kind of road will, will, will recognize. So we were talking to a friend and, and weighing up what to do and we're thinking about home education. She said, you have to make a decision that's right for right now. You have to look at what's in front of you and make a decision based on now. Now, the impact of that that decision, there'll be things that happen down the line and that will cause you struggles, but that's for a later you to worry about. Right now, you have to see what's in front of you and what's happening right in front of you. You can't be weighed down by the what ifs and the, the whens and the wherefores. And, you know, you have to make a decision for now. So we did. We pulled my, my youngest out of school and it's been two years now and they are the happiest they have ever been since they started, since they first entered the school system. Mental health is fantastic, doing amazing things at home, you know, and again, there's a privilege that we were able to make that decision. But my point is riding on the back of yours that sometimes we're so embedded in what we perceive as a problem that we can't see what's in front of us first of all we can't recognize the importance of the person that, that, that we're actually thinking about and worried about because we're so worried about the concerns around the person and some of those concerns might not even exist some of those concerns might have really really easy simple answers if you think about the right now and you don't worry about the what ifs for 10 years down the line or, or whatever um you know and we know that we know that in the uk making that decision to home educate can cause problems with uh, accessing college and university and stuff like that but that's that's a worry that we will that's a battle we'll fight another day because right now we have a child who's happy and is alive and at that point had grave concerns that that wouldn't be the case for very much longer. So, you know, so it, uh, often a lot of this is about you know, like the, the 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 thing about not being able to see the woods for the trees. You know, you've got a tree right in front of you, but that tree is really, really important. And you have to be able to see that tree and forget about the woods and think about that tree as your child. And again, the reasons why you brought that child into the world and what you want for that child and what your child needs, which probably brings us on to the next point. Um, but, you know, because what you want for them and what they need might not always be the same thing. Yeah, and that's exactly where I wanted to go next um, while we're on this topic, because I hear parents, you know, really concerned about, well, I, I want to teach them some more words. And um, they started to say a word or two. Um, now I want to teach them sentences. What do I do to teach them this? Or, um, well, I really want them to be able to sit at the dinner table and have dinner with us, but they can't sit still. Like just all these random, not random, because obviously parents do want their kids to speak, but the thing about sitting at the dinner table is more to me, yeah, a random social norm, isn't it? Social norms. I want them to fit in these social norms. And, you know, um, well, the thing um, that I, responded to um, a parent about, you know, a two-year-old who was just starting to speak words was, great, they're going to continue to speak words. Um, what, whether you teach them words or not, like that's just memorizing new stuff, that's fine. But the way they'll learn to communicate more is by you communicating with them and enjoying and playing with them and using that floor time term words, action, affect. So pairing a word with an action that you do, like, oh, I'm peeling the banana. Mm, 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 it's delicious, you know, like things like that, where they're pairing what they see and you're using your affect. 
and just natural interactions are going to help their speech progress anyway. I don't think it's so important to sit there and think about the list of words that they know and what, you know, teaching words and, and just the social norms too. Like, um, yeah, guess what? You know, my kid is not gonna sit still without bouncing around and, and you know, things like that, that parents get hung up on, but they need to do their homework, but their homework is boring as heck to them. You know, like, how do you really balance these things that parents want? I guess maybe evaluating, like, is what they want really important, but it's important to them, but who's it important for? It, like, what kind of things do you talk about with parents who are think, sort of stuck? I think it's, it's ironically, less important to think about what's important than why things are important. Um, you know, if, if there's a using, using that, that analogy of, you know, my child won't sit at the dinner table. So why is that important? And then, you know, we break down, well, well, that's what I did and that's what's expected. Of, but why is that important? You're not answering why it's important. Why is it imperative to your life or your child's life that they sit in a chair and eat their dinner? Why can't they stand up and eat their dinner? Why can't they even take their dinner to another room? Why do you have to sit together? And the more, the more I've I found with my children, and, and anecdotally with them, um, lots of parents of autistic children as well. The more rules you put in place, the harder life is. And actually, the more freedom you give people, the more autonomy you give people. Actually, the more they're prone to following the rules that you wanted to set in the first place, because they they learn to regulate and they learn to do things and, and meet their needs naturally. Now, we have my wife and I sit and have dinner at the table probably about 50% of the week. Now I've got three children. One of them never joins us, very rarely joins us. Um, and that's okay. Why is it okay? Because they're more comfortable sitting in a somewhere else in the house and eating their dinner and doing what they want to do. And that's absolutely fine because we interact with our child in places that aren't the dinner table. Um, our two oldest, they quite often come and sit with us. Um, but that's because they choose to, they want to. When they were younger, they didn't, but now they do. We never enforce that rule that everybody has to sit at the table because it's just meaningless. You know, sometimes it is nice to share a meal with everybody. And when my youngest comes and joins us, it's when we celebrate, you know, that becomes a real, that's, a, that's a, an important thing. If it was happening every day, it's not so important. You know, you lose the, you lose the, the element of, oh my God, like this is a wonderful thing. We're all together. Let's share that and make that a big deal. You know, we lose that if it's happening all the time because we normalize it. And I think that's digging into why people think something is important when it and, and actually probably getting to the point where you realize that it isn't important at all. It's just because that's what we did growing up and that's what our parents enforced on us. And then that's what we perceive that everybody else is doing when in actual fact, they're probably not doing that at all. Well, they are doing it and not enjoying it. I remember being made to sit at the dinner table every single night and I hated it. It was my parents usually bickering with each other, arguing about something. My my two sisters who were blatantly not interested in being there whatsoever. So, and then me being fed a meal, my mum was a terrible cook. And, and then me being fed a meal that I didn't even want anyway, because it was horrible. So, you know, and it's like, but also sitting on a hard, uncomfortable chair because I didn't like those chairs because they hurt me to sit on, but I had to sit on them. So I had to force myself through pain in order to be there. And then, you know, just all of the other stuff that was going on. And it, it was like, I have no fond memories of that whatsoever. But what I do have fond memories of is at Christmas time, 
we would um not on christmas day because we would all have always have christmas dinner under christmas day but on boxing day the day after christmas we would all sit in the living room and we would have like a buffet where we'd just go and help ourselves to stuff and stuff would just be on the table but we'd all sit together and we'd all talk and chat and have fun and not be sitting at the table we'd be in comfortable places you know so my happy memories are from that not from the sitting down and having the set meals and blah 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 and i know that's one example but there are lots of things like that we just need to when we have neurodivergent children we have to rip up the rule book and that's really difficult for some people to do but no matter how difficult it is we still have to do it because that's what our children need and that's more important than what we want and that's the just the the kind of they're the conversations i tend to have with people now what about um i i get this question a lot too from parents oh but we have you gave the example of christmas dinner at so-and-so's house and all the cousins and family are there and everybody sits at the table except for my child and then everybody looks at me like why isn't your child sitting at the table and then i don't even want to go because then i get looked at like i'm a bad parent and then i can take the food and bring the child in the other room but blah 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 and and i always want to say like, well what's your question you know what's your question how do I get my child to look like all the other kids so that people don't look at me and judge me? Is that your question? Or, you know, what is it? So, I mean, I think you already answered all of that, but <laughs> it can be pressure for, you know, when family members look at you that way because they, they haven't been through it. They don't understand. I, I tend not to take that personally because yes, maybe it's rude, but they literally don't understand. Yeah, I mean, there's various ways you could kind of look at that. And a few years ago, I wouldn't have done this, but I do this now. I'd address the elephant in the room when everyone sat there. <laughs> you know, I was like, who wants to ask me a question about why my child is not sitting at this table? And let's talk about it. Let's let, let's address that. You know, because at the end of the day, you have a disabled child and this is their disability presenting itself. You know, we talk about autism, particularly we're talking about autism here, but we're talking about, we talk about things like this as invisible disabilities, but they're not invisible. They express themselves in many, many different ways. And what you've just described is a child's disability expressing itself. So, so let's talk about it. Let's get it out in the open. But again, you know, we're talking about family again, which again is a whole other podcast, but also, I would I would question if your family, maybe after you've informed them, they know that your child's autistic, they know that they struggle with certain situations, and this is a Christmas Christmas dinner, like you've described, is a very neurotypical kind of situation, um, which they're going to really struggle in. So, if they know that, and yet they're still giving you the funny looks and they're still giving you the side eye over it, I'd question actually. Well, what are you getting out of that relationship with those people? And again, this comes back to where you put boundaries in for yourself. And that can be a really difficult thing to come to terms with. But sometimes you're going to have family members that are going to put pressure on you and are going to be resistant to the fact that your child is disabled and aren't going to believe it and are going to just think that they're a naughty little child or whatever. Um, you know, and, and I think that's when you start questioning your relationship with people because actually if someone is treating you like that, then maybe they're not a very good person to have in your life. And that can be difficult, especially when we're talking about things like parents and brothers and sisters and, and, you know, and close family members. But it's something that many, many autistic people have to come to terms with and parents of autistic children have to come to terms with that, you know, you need firm boundaries with people, even if it is your own family. And sometimes that can even mean cutting people off, which is a drastic thing, but a necessary thing sometimes. 
So what's, you know, is it is it better to conform in those situations or is it better to think, actually, why am I putting myself and my children through this in the first place? Yeah, I agree. And, and I think sometimes the opposite happens too, where um, family members cut us out. So all of a sudden, everybody's invited to this event except you and your child. And that's very hurtful and distressing for a lot of parents. Um, I mean, I guess it's up to each person whether they feel comfortable addressing that person. Like, you know, it really hurt my feelings that you didn't invite me. It's and sometimes, really sometimes it's not out of intentional negativity. It's sometimes it's an unwitting thing. It's sometimes, you know, it's people who don't know better kind of thinking, well, if we don't invite them, then they don't have to worry about the stress of it. And then they're not going to struggle with it. You know, it could come from that place of good intention, but this is where communication comes in. And, you know, you have to make the decision if someone's, if someone's not invited me somewhere or has cut me out of something or is repeatedly doing that, you know, you have to decide whether you talk to them or not and have an honest and frank conversation with them. And it might be that they're completely horrified by the fact that they've upset you and, and, and excluded you but it might be that they've done it deliberately. So, you know, and again, that comes back to then having boundaries and boundaries and communication are everything. And boundaries of communication are things that families are really bad at because again, a conversation I was having uh, uh, a few days ago about another piece of advice that I was given. And I think I might've mentioned this with you before about we don't bring up children. We bring up adults. We have children, but we bring them up to be adults. So we want our adults to have good boundaries with people, to have agency and authenticity and, you know, and and autonomy and, and to be well-rounded, mentally well people who are able to make informed decisions about their life and have control and have good lives. All of us, I don't know any adults, there are no adults in my life that I, am, I, am, I know or am friends with that don't struggle with relationships and don't struggle with boundaries because they were never taught them. And they were never encouraged to have them because they were treated like children and not treated like adults that were being brought up. And that's the distinction. We want our next generation of kids to grow up, to have those boundaries with people, to be able to clearly communicate with people. And it's us as parents that stop our children from growing up into being that because we were never given that as children. Yep. Yep. It there. Um, it's one thing for sure that, I've sought out to learn more in my adult life is more about boundaries in general with people, with family, with, you know, with everything. So, um, that is a good, a good nugget for people as well. And it's not easy. That's for sure. No, it's not. This concludes part one of our podcast with Kieran Rose. Stay tuned for next week when we will get to the topic of adult diagnosis and how self-advocate adults are helpful for us who have young children. We Chose Play is a new series documenting my family's floor time journey. You can see the preview on YouTube and you can register to watch the extended trailer for free at affectautism.com play or just go to wechoseplay.com. With each episode, you'll glean insights, tips, and reflections, what I learned and what I know now that I would tell myself back then along the way. I hope it will support caregivers in their floor time experience. We chose play. We have joy every day. Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.